0: My name is Dr. Joshua Nabb. I'm a board-certified clinical psychologist and 21st century Christ follower. Early in life, I experienced overwhelming psychological suffering, which led me down a path of wandering away from my faith in my adolescent years, reminiscent of the lost son in Luke's gospel, returning to my Christian heritage in my early 20s, my own intensive psychotherapy in my mid-20s, and ultimately a life committed to understanding and pursuing psychological and spiritual health As I now head into the middle years of my life, please join me as we devote a half hour each week to better understanding secular and Christian perspectives on mental health and the intersection between psychology and Christianity. Then engage in a 10 minute practice to conclude each episode, drawing upon Christian meditation, prayer, and contemplation. Above all else, my aim in this podcast is to journey with fellow Christ followers as well as those who are curious about the rich heritage of Christian psychological and spiritual insights into the human condition, doing so with humility and curiosity as we devote ourselves to Christlikeness in all we do. Hi, this is Dr. Joshua Knapp, and welcome to the sixth episode of The Christian Psychologist. In this particular episode, I'd like to devote our time to a topic that is increasingly at the center of many discussions in secular clinical psychology. The topic is experiential avoidance, which I'd like to define in this episode, explore the research behind experiential avoidance in this episode, and turn to a Christian biblical understanding of experiential avoidance, including its costs in the Christian life. So as we get started, I wanted to first bring up the World Happiness Report. This is published annually. I believe the first report was published around 2013. And the World Happiness Report compiles data on basically nations from around the world to look at overall happiness. And fascinatingly, I don't believe that the United States has made the top 10 list since it was first published. Despite being the wealthiest, most resourced, most technologically savvy, or at least were one of the most technologically savvy nations that's ever existed in the history of the world. So with this in mind, given that we seem to have happiness sort of like the carrot dangling from the proverbial stick, just out of reach. Is happiness the aim of life? Is reducing psychological suffering and increasing happiness and pleasure the aim for Christ followers in the 21st century? So some preliminary questions for us to consider. Is life suffering? for secular adults, for Christian adults? What about our view of the world? What does our view of the world have to say about suffering or worldview? Is it inevitable and should it be accepted? Should we make room for it, at least on some level? Or should we spend our energy and time trying to eradicate it? Is life about getting rid of psychological pain or relating differently to it? Is pleasure and happiness the ultimate aim in life? Or should something else other than happiness as a fleeting, impermanent emotion guide us? Is mental health the absence of pain, the presence of happiness, or something else? So when I say psychological pain, I'm referring to difficult, unpleasant, common thoughts, feelings, sensations, images, memories, basically the inner world, our inner experiences. Notice here that I'm not using the word negative, which can have an influence on how how we even begin to approach this conversation if we believe that these unpleasant inner experiences are negative. For example, are unpleasant emotions negative or important God-given signals that help us to navigate the sometimes treacherous terrain of life? In the current secular clinical psychology literature, I think we're realizing more and more that it is unrealistic and unattainable to fully eliminate psychological suffering. In fact, trying to avoid the inevitable inner pain of life may actually make things worse, given we not only can't get rid of unpleasant thoughts and feelings, but we end up struggling to live life, given we stay indoors, delay, or procrastinate in pursuing goals, and ultimately determine that we can't live life until the pain goes away. So we are not in the game and instead we are on the sidelines watching other people play the game to their fullest. So in this episode, I want to talk about the problem of avoiding psychological pain. What do we do with it? Do we try to avoid it? Do we try to reduce it or eliminate it? Do we try to control it? Our thoughts, our feelings, sensations, memories, images. Not only does it not work to try to avoid, but it may end up robbing us of living a vibrant, meaningful life. Devoted to following Jesus wherever he would have us go walking confidently home to the outstretched arms of the loving Father. Remember, Christian mental health, at least from my perspective, is about Christ-likeness and being empowered by the Holy Spirit to confidently walk with the Son home to the outstretched arms of the Father. If this is the case, we will experience pain along the way which should not be sought, we're not looking for pain, we're not masochistic, given it will end up finding us in a broken world. However, it should not be avoided, given avoidance can distract us from following Jesus in love wherever he wants us to go as we carry out his perfect will for our life. So an opening quote to get us started here from the late Trappist monk, Thomas Merton. Merton says, quote, The truth that many people never understand until it is too late is that the more you try to avoid suffering, the more you suffer, because smaller and more insignificant things begin to torture you in proportion to your fear of being hurt. The one who does most to avoid suffering is, in the end, the one who suffers the most. And this suffering comes to him from things so little and so trivial that one can say that it is no longer objective at all. It is his own existence, his own being, that is at once the subject and the source of his pain. And his very existence and consciousness is his greatest torture. The more we avoid, the more we are preoccupied with pain, the more we end up suffering in life. According to the early desert Christians, one desert Christian says, unless a person says in his heart, I alone and God are in the world, he will not have peace. So can we get to a place where we really do practice God's presence and imagine walking with God in the world, even in the midst of the pains of life? Another early desert Christian says, My son, if you want to receive benefit, remain in your cell, paying attention to yourself and your handwork. It is not advantageous for you to come out, for there's nothing so beneficial as staying put. The early desert Christians talked a lot about staying put in their cell. Their cell was a place they lived in, a small room they lived in, where they often engaged in basket weaving and other basic tasks as they recited the Psalms and stayed put. The idea was not to flee the cell or run from the cell, but to face your inner world. The cell really captures, I think, for 21st century Christ followers, the idea of staying put with whatever arises in the inner world. So at this point, I'd like to offer a personal story as we move into this idea of experiential avoidance and the problems it may cause, and then move into a biblical understanding before concluding with a 10-minute exercise that focuses on learning how to, practicing lamenting to God as a way to understand, embrace, cry out to God in the midst of pain, as well as, in conjunction with, praising God, thanking God, finding gratitude in the midst of seasons of what one theologian calls disorientation. So I can still remember entering my dad's hospice room, knowing the probability was great that he would take his very last breath right then and there in that small, unfamiliar bed surrounded by family and strangers alike. I was in my mid-twenties. I made the drive to about an hour and a half away where he was resting, taking his last few breaths. As I entered, a wave of emotions overwhelmed me. Including the anxiety of not knowing what would be next for him, for me, for my relationship with my family on his side, on my dad's side, as well as the sadness of losing him and knowing I would never get back the past, the present, or the future with him. Yet, as I knelt by his side to say goodbye, when it was my turn to spend my alone time with him. I recognized it was important to feel whatever emotions there were to feel, not somehow fighting with my emotional world, denying it as if my emotions weren't telling me something important about my experience, my relationship with him, and this probably for the first time experience in life of having to say goodbye of loss. Since my dad's last breath, about two decades or so ago, the sadness, the loss has not subsided. I would say that I've had to learn to relate differently to it. I've learned how to better understand it. And to see that it's a signal that tells me what's important in life. And I would not have it any other way. To make peace with our pain on this side of heaven, in a fallen, broken world, is so important to learn how to, with compassion, understand our inner world and understand what God is revealing to us in our inner world. In fact, it took over a year of personal psychotherapy for me to begin to befriend my emotions, recognizing they conveyed vital information to me about what I needed, what I missed, what I valued, what I cherished in my tumultuous and tragically unresolved relationship with my father. During my teenage years, I often felt a deep sadness due to the loss of not having him in my life as often as I wanted on a daily basis. He simply wasn't there I also felt fear and anxiety in living with a single parent, my mom, who was just trying to survive, just trying to make ends meet. Yet I commonly attempted to avoid these more vulnerable feelings with anger, with resentment toward him, toward life, toward God. And this led to a rebellious streak, and array of other unhealthy responses to my emotional pain. Fast forward to the present day and the deep sadness I felt as I watched my kids get older, wonder what it would have been like to have my own dad there as their grandparent to celebrate life. It's a reminder to me that we live in a fallen, broken world, that I needed him in ways he was not willing or able to be present, and that I value presence as I raise my own kids with my wife. I value the stability and structure and safety and comfort that our family unit provides. Steve Hayes, a clinical psychologist and co-developer of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, a popular therapy that talks a lot about experiential avoidance and the need to accept our inner world in order to live out our values in the outer world. He helped to really develop and research experiential avoidance. And he offers a fitting metaphor to capture this reality in life. What we might call the dashboard metaphor. So when driving, we need our dashboard to reveal a variety of potential challenges on the roads of life. We have a check engine light, a low fuel light, a low tire pressure light. We have all kinds of signals on our dashboard that light up, that tell us about important details when we are driving. To ignore these lights will not help us to get to our destination, given they are signals that tell us something needs to be further investigated although we can certainly watch YouTube videos to find clever ways to reset these lights. I've certainly done this with the check engine light in the recent past. The underlying reason they light up, our dashboard does not just go away because we find clever ways to eliminate them. In a similar way, our emotions, from my perspective, are are signals God-given signals conveying vital information about what we need, our relationships, what steps, behaviorally speaking, we need to take. Our emotions enliven life. The person who is able to express their emotions in a healthy way enriches relationships. Our emotions, one author says, are the glue of relationships. So, for example, sadness tells us we've lost something important. We need to slow down, recover, not act impulsively to assess the situation and eventually replace what was lost. Anger alerts us to a perceived injustice, some aspect of unfairness, and helps us to take action, to gain distance or a sense of control, To stand up for what is right. Fear tells us there's something dangerous before us in the present moment, and we need to act quickly via our God given fight or flight system, which is absolutely essential in a fallen, broken world. Anxiety tells us there's something dangerous ahead, and we need to take steps to remedy a future catastrophe. It also tells us that we are preoccupied with something, and it helps us to understand what we are putting our trust in, what we value, which might or might not be consistent with God's will. Guilt, although often downplayed or disavowed in our contemporary, increasingly secular psychology, actually tells us we've wronged someone and need to make amends and repair the rupture. It helps us to hopefully take action to, from a Christian perspective, repent, turn the other way, do something different, make change. Even shame, from my perspective, can reveal important information. I think it tells us we are incomplete. We are powerless without God. We're estranged from Him. There's something not quite right about who we are outside of a perfect, loving relationship with God. As finite human beings, we need Him. And we have this emptiness without Him at our core. With each of these God-given emotions, we need to learn to accept, not avoid them. Making peace with the reality that they are a part of our experience as signals. They need not define us, they need not overwhelm us to the point of inaction, but they are part of the dashboard. So just like the loss of my father, losses are inevitable in this fallen world Grieving is inevitable in this fallen world. It conveys important information that what we lost was important, that there's something not quite right about loss, and that we value connection. We were created in God's image to be in relationship, and when we lose that, there's something vital that we've lost. So in a fallen, broken world filled with loss, Filled with hardship. Our emotions are signals. They offer us dashboard lights that enrich and enliven life and alert us to needs, dangers, and so forth in our environment, in our relationships, including our relationship with God. So what exactly is experiential avoidance and why is it a problem? Well, the definition basically is The struggle to accept unpleasant inner experiences, which are inevitable, including difficult thoughts, feelings, sensations, memories, and images. Thoughts, maybe worry, maybe rumination, maybe self-criticism. Feelings, some of the feelings I just mentioned, sensations. It might be unpleasant sensations like physical pain. We know now that pain medication... Maybe over the last decade, at times was overprescribed and can create more problems than good. Even though we may have chronic pain, taking pain medication to numb the pain to avoid the pain can create all kinds of problems with tolerance, withdrawal, side effects, impairment in driving and executive functioning or, or problem-solving, using machinery, images and memories. In a fallen, broken world, we will have painful memories. But what do we do with them? Is the solution to try to avoid them, which ends up maybe impairing daily life? Not wanting to go to the store that reminds us of a prior painful event, not wanting to drive through a certain part of town, not wanting to listen to a song, or watch a TV show, or go to a certain location that reminds us of the pain of the past. At a certain point, the walls start closing in the more and more we avoid because we don't want to face the pain. And this is understandable. Pain is so difficult. As human beings, I think on some level we are wired to avoid pain. And yet, when we try to avoid emotional pain, it can do more harm than good. So what are some of the types of experiential avoidance? Well, behavioral avoidance is really avoiding behaviors if they make us uncomfortable or we will experience distress. Avoiding getting in our car and going to the party because of social anxiety. A second type might be distress aversion, hoping and expecting that all unpleasant inner experiences will go away. So what is our attitude towards expectations of inner pain? Do we have an expectation that it will not be there? Procrastination is a third one. Delaying completing activities and tasks if they will involve or lead to some sort of pain. Distraction is another type of experiential avoidance, trying to focus other experience, on other experiences when inner pain comes up. And then another one might be denial, struggling to identify difficult inner experiences, even to the point of being unfamiliar with our own inner world, our own emotional world. There are all kinds of ways that we attempt to experientially avoid in our society. No shortage of distractions. Experiential avoidance might take the form of drugs, whether prescribed or not. Alcohol, which is celebrated in our society and attached to many, many celebratory events. The internet can be a form of escape or avoidance, including pornography, including gaming, how many hours, how many days, weeks, years, decades are we now losing to gaming? Choosing a virtual reality in place of a real reality. The prosperity gospel can even be a form of avoidance. This idea that God will bless me with a life free of pain, when in fact, For Christ followers, we follow and worship a suffering servant who tells us to take up our cross. There will be some suffering on this side of heaven. Do we have an expectation that life can't begin until God grants us our prayer to feel pleasure and avoid pain? Or we might even look to certain therapies that try to reduce or eliminate pain establishing some sort of expectation that life can begin when pain goes away. In terms of research, experiential avoidance has been positively linked to fancy term psychopathology, meaning a whole host of problems in psychological functioning, depression, anxiety. And over time, we've learned that it's not the symptoms of these mental disorders, DSM disorders that are the problem. It's our avoidance of them. A quick example might be panic disorder. So someone with a panic disorder maybe has a panic attack for one minute a day. Definitely a scary, overwhelming experience. But in addition to the one minute a day during the 23 hours and 59 minutes of the day, there's a struggle to accept the reality that that panic attack took place. There's a preoccupation with having additional panic attacks to the point that the majority of the day is spent avoiding life. The reason that experiential avoidance is such a problem according to some of the newer forms of therapy in the secular clinical psychology literature, including acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT for short, is because it prevents us from living out our values, which are principles for living that are stable, ongoing, global, that give us a compass for life, according to ACT. So as 21st century Christ followers we may end up being afraid to volunteer in a prayer ministry or children's ministry at church, given we might struggle with social anxiety. So not only are the symptoms of social anxiety difficult, but the attempt to avoid such symptoms by staying at home, rather than following Jesus to the sign-up booth, and caring for and serving others with love as the crowning biblical virtue. This can lead to what Steve Hayes of ACT calls pain on top of pain. We have the initial pain there, which doesn't go away. People who are anxious tend to be anxious and continue to be anxious. Studies, longitudinal research has suggested that people presenting with Anxiety, often continue to struggle with anxiety when we monitor symptoms at a clinic long-term. So the initial pain is there. Anxiety, sadness, depression, anger. We try to avoid it by staying home, by avoiding relationships, by avoiding risks in life, by not seeking the promotion at work. We have this pain, it doesn't go away despite our best efforts, despite the avoidance. Then we also have the pain on top of pain, the pain of missing out on life as we still continue to struggle with the symptoms. So not only does avoidance not work, we tragically end up watching other people live their lives and miss out on the gift that God has given us in the form of living out his will to the fullest on this side of heaven as we walk with him. So as I've mentioned in prior episodes, in secular clinical psychology, mindfulness is often the go-to, at least in the cognitive behavioral therapy literature of which Acceptance and commitment therapy is, is a part of. Since mindfulness includes cultivating and maintaining an attitude of non-judgment toward inner experiences, this form of meditation can help us relate differently to not avoid unpleasant inner experiences so we can live life. We can stay engaged in life. Mindfulness can also help us to relate to inner pain with loving acceptance or compassion, not just a neutral posture towards pain, not just a non-judgmental posture, but we can actually have more compassion like we would walk up to a child, maybe sitting on a curb all alone crying and be responsive to that pain and understand that child just experienced a loss And ask about that pain and soothe and comfort the child not to dismiss the pain, not to criticize the pain, but to understand it. Even the child who walks out of an ice cream shop with a cone and two scoops of ice cream on top with maybe one scoop falling on the ground and the child cries. We can understand if we enter into that child's world that that loss is painful. That child was looking forward to those two scoops. And even though there might be one scoop left, just to understand the child's sadness in their world at that time, that loss is significant. So overall acceptance rather than avoidance is increasingly the preferred strategy for responding to psychological suffering for a handful of reasons. First, Our emotions, if we view them as signals, should not be disavowed or avoided. Rather, they reveal important information about our environment, our needs, our relationships, and so on and so forth. Also, avoidance does not work long-term and is inconsistent with reality. Think life is suffering and living a meaningful, vibrant life will involve some pain and suffering. The things that matter most involve some pain. Easy example would be exercise. Not at the top of everyone's list as something they enjoy doing in and of itself, but the pain has purpose behind it. Another reason eliminating psychological pain and suffering is not realistic as revealed by the fact that we have not been able to eliminate it in decade after decade of clinical psychology and research there. Many people still struggle with the most common DSM-5-TR disorders, anxiety and depressive disorders, what we refer to as emotional disorders. And these emotional disorders are often chronic, and they occur together. They're not likely to go away. Can we make peace with them? Like making peace with a roommate who you've signed a long-term lease with. The roommate's loud and noisy and at times leaves dishes in the sink. And we can get angry and upset and argue all day long. Or we can find ways to make peace with that noisy uh, roommate. How can we learn to make peace with our inner world? We don't need to agree with it always, but we can accept it. And not allow it to determine what we do in life. Also, experiential avoidance is linked to psychopathology or or all kinds of issues in general, along with very specific diagnoses and diagnostic categories, major categories, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, trauma disorders. As one more reason, being compassionate is how we typically respond to someone else who is suffering. And yet, why do we so quickly try to avoid when it comes to ourselves? Now, sometimes we receive messages from caregivers saying, stop feeling that way. And so we end up earlier in life developing a unhealthy relationship to our emotions. So there's the emotion and then there's the meta-emotion or the emotion about the emotion. And sometimes that meta-emotion, what we feel about our feelings is shame. How can we learn to accept our emotions as God-given signals to lean into them with compassion, with loving acceptance and say, they are a part of my experience, not all of my experience, but they can help me to better navigate the roads of life similar to that check engine light. So what does the Bible say about this topic? The Bible's filled with a wide variety of examples of figures crying out to God, accepting the pains of life, and using emotional pain as a signal. The Lament Psalms offer a fitting example of this two-step process of offering a complaint to God, which includes corresponding emotional pain, then praising God, even if the emotional pain was not eliminated. What are some maybe examples of experiential avoidance in the Bible? Well, Jonah's a classic example. Peter denying Jesus. Examples of acceptance in the Bible. Jesus, of course, going all the way to the cross. denying his own will for the will of the Father. The Lament Psalms I mentioned just right now. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. So I think the Bible has lots of examples of biblical figures who avoided because of anxiety or uncertainty or accepted and lived out God's will even when in pain. So, There's a reality of suffering within a biblical worldview. God created us in his image to be in relationship with him, to depend on him, to see him at the center. We turned from God with the fall. We wanted to be like God and knowing good and evil. Suffering enters the world. Adam and Eve likely felt guilt for what they did. Shame in their separation from God. This incompleteness post-fall possibly sadness because of the loss of perfect safety and comfort and communion with him. Even maybe anxiety because of the uncertainty of what was next, living in a post-fall world, filled with pain and hardship and toil and strife and ultimately death. So avoidance entered the world in addition to suffering. Adam and Eve hid and covered up in shame. And to this very day, we do the same. Yet God offers a redemptive plan, using pain, the pain of the cross, to reconcile humankind to himself. So there's something redemptive in pain and suffering on this side of heaven. Prior to God's eventual restorations, Christians can experience a friendship again in our relationship with God because of our union with Christ, yet suffering in a post-fall world continues to persist. It's inevitable. So a biblical worldview makes room for pain. Doesn't want it, doesn't celebrate it, although it can be redemptive, does not look for it. It will find us, but we make room for it as a post-fall inevitable reality. So even though a right view of suffering is necessary, given it is inevitable because of sin and the fall, we can, as Christians, as Christ followers, nevertheless, have hope that we are sojourners, that we are walking through a land that's not our home as we head toward a final destination, which is restoration, that God will eventually restore all things, which means there is a hope in healing, wholeness, and perfect intimacy in our relationship with God as we approach heaven. One theologian, Douglas Hall, states, Biblical faith does not flinch or cloak, in pretty phrases, its assumption that being human means suffering. So for me, one of the reasons I think Christianity and the Bible offer the most fitting worldview when attempting to make sense of reality and suffering is their understanding of these aspects of the human condition. We live in a world filled with brokenness and suffering, Sometimes because of our own doings, sometimes not. Sometimes we are victims, sometimes we are perpetrators. Sin is devastating and it impacts all of life. As human beings, we want autonomy post-fall, but we also crave dependence. There's this deep conflict. Given we're finite and we were never designed to be alone in our pain. So we need God to help us in our pain, our emotional pain to soothe us and comfort us. Like the psalmist says, like a weaned child, I am content. We crave a deeper contentment in God, that childlike contentment, like a child being held in a mother's arms, having just been fed. So in terms of Christian spiritual writings, I love the psalms, and especially the Lament Psalms to capture the reality of suffering and the need for the healthy expression of emotional pain. So the theologian Walter Bregeman, several centuries ago, wrote a book called The Message of the Psalms and points out that the Psalms have really three seasons that are mentioned, seasons of orientation. So some of the songs in the Psalms, capture joy and celebration before God. But we also have seasons of disorientation, which these Psalms capture suffering, agony, pain, loneliness, rejection. These Psalms, according to Bregman, are, quote-unquote, over the top, crying out to God, trying to get God's attention in pain. Then we have seasons of new orientation captured in the Psalms. Songs of God's blessings after a season of despair, hurt, loneliness. And this pattern of orientation, disorientation, and new orientation, I think fittingly captures the human condition. There will be times where we are joyous and can celebrate. there will be times where we are disorientation, I'm sorry disoriented and are in agony and there are times when we will be surprised by God's blessings coming out of a season of disorientation and have a newfound or confirmed reinforced trust and faith in God. So during seasons of disorientation, We will experience emotional pain. What do we do with that? Well, I think the psalmists in their laments conveyed that, at least process-wise, that crying out to God and expressing the pain is important, not avoiding it. And this is consistent with what we know in contemporary secular clinical psychology, that avoiding pain doesn't work. So consistent with our biblical heritage, how can we cry out to God in pain, not avoid it? So what are the stages of lamenting to God? We have some sort of plea to God or plea and complaint to God, this petition for God to act. We might even get angry at God. And yet there's this turning of the corner where we end up praising God, acknowledging God has heard our cry. We are grateful before God. I think this is the both and of life. Life is both painful and we can still find God in the midst of that pain, guiding us through that pain and we can still give thanks and find a deeper contentment as we commune with him through not around the pain. So for many biblical characters, life was about reaching out to God while in pain, not waiting for it to go away which I think is a model for Christian clients, Christian congregants, Christ followers, suffering in the 21st century. Ultimately, in the message of the Psalms, Breggeman states that as Christians, we can often attempt to cover up suffering by assuming the Psalms are only about happy songs, happy times, only celebrations, but They are actually, the Lament Psalms are actually, quote-unquote, an act of bold faith that really does capture the reality of a fallen, broken world before God. So according to Bregeman, quote-unquote, all experiences of disorder are a proper subject of discourse with God. We don't avoid, we bring our laments to God In pain and walk with him through the experience knowing he is by our side and knowing that he is revealing himself to us through the emotional experience so instead of God help me get rid of it's God help me to relate differently to and find meaning in and find your purpose in pain and suffering after all the ultimate act of redemption was filled with pain, the cross. There's something mysterious about God using pain in a fallen world to redeem, to restore, to help us to grow into being more like Christ. The sanctification process. So let's enter into this including practice by lamenting to God. So I'd like to pair lamenting with God with Lectio Divina, offering a complaint to God, then a praise to God as we read, meditate, pray, and contemplate in God's presence. In doing so, we'll be practicing accepting whatever emotions emerge, offering a complaint, and praise to God in the midst of them because he is with us to see us through. To begin, find a quiet location, free from distractions, sit up straight in a supportive chair, and rest your hands comfortably in your lap. Now slowly read through Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Next. Begin to meditate on two key themes from Psalm 13 the complaint and praise, the both and of life. So, first, slowly, softly, and gently ask, How long, Lord, in the context of your emotional pain? How long, Lord, for example, must I struggle with this sadness? How long, Lord? must I struggle with this anxiety? How long, Lord, must I struggle with this anger and resentment, this guilt, this shame? Then gently and lovingly meditate on the praise a bit further along in the passage. But I trust in your unfailing love. Again and again. Meditate on the complaint. How long, Lord? Embracing the agonizing pain and presenting it to God. Then praise, but I trust in your unfailing love. How long, Lord, crying out, then praising him, but I trust in your unfailing love. Cry out to God in pain. And trust God in the pain. Trust that God's love will see you through walking In, not around. Whatever experiences emerge in this fallen, broken world. Now pray to God, asking Him to help you make room for and express all of your emotional pain. Whatever emerges in the inner world does nothing to hold back, whether they our complaints or emotional pain, express it all to God. Again, holding nothing back, reminiscent of the psalmists. In this prayer, also ask Him to help you balance your complaint in a fallen, broken world with praise thanking God and being grateful for his many, many blessings, even in an imperfect world filled with inner pain. Pairing the complaint and the praise. In the midst of this pain, as I cry out to you, God, you are loving me right here, right now. Soothing me, comforting me, as we walk together. To conclude, contemplate God's loving goodness as you now rest in a trustful state of surrender, like a weaned child, you're content, knowing he is caring for you, holding you in the midst of your emotional pain. There's not an expectation it will go away, but a trust that God will soothe and comfort you and understand you and respond to you and hold you in this pain. In other words, God is with you at the center of the experience. So gently recite the word trust as you rest in him allowing him to soothe and comfort your pain. Trust. You're trusting that God has a purpose and a plan and is present to soothe and comfort you in the midst of this experience. And as this practice comes to a close, make a commitment to carry this lament with you through the day. A both and strategy to experience all of life, not avoid it. The complaint and the praise. How long, Lord, followed by, but I will trust. How long, Lord, crying out, and I will trust. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes again and reorient yourself to your surroundings. As we conclude this episode want to re-emphasize that I think the Lament Psalms capture the human condition quite well and are consistent with what we are concluding in secular clinical psychology, that avoidance doesn't work. It's about walking through, not around pain. Although secular clinical psychologists help clients to accept inner pain because the alternative avoidance doesn't work, for Christians we have a trustworthy, trustworthy, traveling companion. And so we can accept pain, present the pain to God, who understands, who knows. We have, as the writer of Hebrews says, a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who empathizes with our weaknesses, who knows what it's like to be human and to feel all there is to feel. Given he went all the way to the cross And so my hope is that as a body, as Christians, we can learn to have a perspective on suffering that the world takes note of, that we can learn how to suffer with God by our side, with God soothing and comforting us and offering us a deeper contentment in the midst of. So I hope this podcast has been helpful today and look forward to interacting with you in the next one. Have a great week. Thanks.